You're listening to Q&A Over Coffee. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for obtaining accounting, tax, or financial advice from a professional accountant. You've Adam, been in the, the business world though a long time. Has that changed? Like, I'm sure you guys, when you were my age, let's just say, right? How old are you? 42-ish, okay. 42. Wasn't that long ago, but yeah. Right, all right. 20 well, fair years. enough. All right, well, we'll wind it back even years. further then. Let's say when you were 30 and you were in the business. You still had issues pop up. Yeah, but we didn't have, the, the tax law was not nearly as complex, not nearly as complex, and nor were the accounting rules. Oh. You didn't have, uh, you didn't have revenue recognition, you didn't have uh, leasing, you just had a trial balance, you did substantive testing. Because here's what I think is funny is I, I, hear, I hear from my parents, right? They'll say, well, when I was your age, you know, we had it, we had it hard. We we had to go to school in the snow, four feet tie, cross the barbed wire fence. And I find myself saying to my kids, oh man, you guys got it so easy. When I was your age, like we had it so hard. And I guarantee you when they get to be my age, they're going to be saying to their kids, when I was your age, you guys got it so easy now. Like, so. I could say with confidence that because I've been working on both sides of the practice for like 25 years, because I, for a long time I was a, on a staff auditor. And then at one point I was a tax manager. Then I was a audit manager. And then I was a generalist at doing taxes again in this healthcare firm. And now I'm kind of in the middle. So I can tell you from actual hand-to-hand combat, the the, it wasn't so bad until about eight years ago, eight or 10 years ago, but it, the divergence has gotten really intense. Like, I'm, it's all I can do to keep up now with yeah. the audit stuff. RevRec, lease, uh, assurance, the, uh, the risk assessments. And I'm very careful about it. And I make that joke, you know, you guys, I'm very careful about that. But I do because I don't wanna, I don't wanna misinterpret risk and, and have us go down a bad path. Hello and welcome to the Olson Thielen Q&A Over Coffee podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hennon. With me in the room today is our other co-hosts, Dan Owens and Tom Pesh. And we're here today to talk about readying your business for sale. So, uh, Dan, why don't you just start off quick, give an introduction, what's going on. It's been a little while, I think, since we've all been together on a podcast at the same time. It's so. been a while. I think the last time we had a roundtable like this, we talked about uh, financial statements and the importance of uh, preparing financial statements and the uh, different types of financial statements and, you know, internal and external. Um, and uh, we uh, just, I was also on recently talking about banking, uh, you know, the five C's of credit with Tom. And that was, that was a really fun, uh, really fun outing. We had a, a, a banker come in and that was great. I think, yeah, good to see you, Adam yep. and Dano. I think the, the banking um, uh, podcast was very good. Um, it's all applicable to the clients about how to get credit and what to be doing. It kind of feathers in with this, how to get your business I was business just going to say, you know, speaking of financial statements, I'm yep. readying your business for sale. That's going to be a key issue too, so. But planning is always good, I think. Planning is always good. So on the topic of planning, maybe I'll just kick it off. And Tom, I'll throw this question out to you. So people, you know, selling their business for a lot of different reasons. Um, and a lot of times it's, it's right before they're ready to sell that they start talking about selling their business. But how far ahead of a sale should owners start thinking about, you know, what do I need to do to get my business ready for sale? Well, I think that's a great question. So I have a lot of healthcare clinics and I like to, to call it this, this baton handoff thing. I, I think that like a five year or a 10 year point in time is really good because depending upon the business, you have to uh, train your successors and you really, before you let the business go, you should really be confident that they can do the work. So 
um, you know, if you're a, a, a business owner that's a manufacturer and you're navigating sales and marketing and you're involved in operations and you have to deal with finances as well, that's a pretty broad set of topics. And so I think to get the young people or the successors um, involved five years in advance and for example, I have a client right now who has his sons sit in on the year-end tax planning meeting. Now we've done it twice, two years in a row now, because he wants them to see what we do in December for the tax planning. They're going to be the successors to the business. I think five years is a minimum, but you're going to be talking to those people. You know, Let them know what's happening, what their plan is. Maybe you staircase them in. Maybe you have them buy a 5% position in the firm, and then the following year another 5% so that they get accustomed to the mentality of being the owner and playing for real. So, you know, five, 10 years, I think. I don't think it's too soon. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Dan, what do you think? Well, I, I think that's terrific from the aspect of that. Uh, you're a small business and, uh, you know, you may have a small team around you, but maybe your team's not big enough. Um, maybe you have to, uh, maybe you have to upgrade your services from your accountant. Maybe you have to uh, start getting a compilation or review done. Uh, maybe you need to start talking to your attorneys and making sure that your your buy sell agreements and your kind of your, your equity related agreements are are, are in current shape. Um, and so you know your banking relationship. I think you got to start preparing your team far in advance for this potential event to you know maximize your return. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, you know, we talked a little bit about um, generational transfer and or just succession planning in the sense of like who's going to fill my boots you know, when I'm not here anymore. And that transition takes probably a lot more lead time than, you know, what you need to do on your balance sheet and your income statement and, and getting the, the banking and the financing options all lined up. And, I mean, you know, part of the magic on that is that if you don't run your successors through multiple years of scenarios, they may not know what to do when there's a downturn. It's easy to tax plan when you got big profits. You know, two years in a row, we've made a lot of money. We take, we, maybe we do estimated taxes, we do bonuses, we buy equipment. But what do you do if the business is, is suddenly gone super soft and you have a reduction in sales and you have to watch the leader reduce expenses and to kind of pull in horns and maybe get the expense categories, you know, reorientated. If, if the successors don't see that, they might be like deers in headlights. So it might take multiple years to see multiple scenarios. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about financial records uh, for business when they're getting ready to sell. How important is this? I mean, is this a, is this a big factor? Is it kind of just a, you know, um, you know, a small piece in the big puzzle. What are we, what are we talking about here? I think here, I've always believed that the accounting records are supposed to serve the operators of the business. And so I, I dislike when we have a lot of uh, extra spreadsheets that are going on on the side. I think we should let, we should buy software and or process that is, um, you know, um, repeatable and it can be safely backed up. Um, Financial records, I think, in the context of what should we be doing internally, there should be some sort of a process manual for your accounting group and even perhaps for your sales group and for your operations group. But the financial records should really be the kind of the uh, historian of the business. And you should be able to see over time, you know, sales trends, uh, margin analysis, uh, vendor relationships, customer relationships, bonus payrolls, um, because I think that history helps you operate in the current real time. So I've always believed the financial records are really critical because decisions should be partly data driven. 
not not and we all know this from experience that you'll have a business owner just doesn't feel right something's not right they'll say well turns out that their customers are seeping away because of competition they just know that because the phone's not ringing the data will support that after like they look back after a quarter or two so the data should be telling a story uh, in conjunction with the pulse of the business by the owner i think the financial records are critical they are, though I, I, you know, I want to caution people. Like a lot, of, I've had some people look at a balance sheet and say, "Well, I have, you know, two million in assets. My business is worth two million. and I, you know, that's a very deceptive thought, right? And and so much more goes into sale price and how much your business is worth when you're getting ready to sell, such as kind of like you're saying, historical financial statements will tell you trend of revenue. Are you shrinking? Are you growing? I mean, those have to do with multiples and and on the price play, right? And so, uh, Dan, you look like you wanted to add something to that too. Yeah, certainly those trends in the analysis, and really, it's. I think um, you don't want to be doing this just once a year, um, making sure that your records are good. You're going to want to have a process that you know interim, at least on a quarterly basis, maybe monthly if you've got the the resources, to make sure that those key account balances are reconciled, um, and making sure that your your sales reports, uh, what's coming out of the system, is accurate, and uh, that you've got the identification of your major customers, because that's always going to be. Uh, uh, big focus especially on the due diligence process regarding uh, the composition the, the the type of your revenues you have the geography of those um, certainly the credit arrangements that are present with those customers so um, particularly on the revenue side because that's really what a key focus is going to be obviously the expenses are huge too but the revenue side really nailing that down getting an understanding of that revenue recognition cycle for the business you know I in the context of um you know, getting your business ready for sale. Sometimes we can look at the financial records and determine if the business has discipline. And um, you can tell a loosey-goosey business run and you can tell a well-disciplined business run. Um, and I'm, I've got one of each on my desk, like currently. And it's, it, it, the decision-making ability with the the, the poor disciplined business is really problematic because they're making decisions based on data that's not accurate. And that's a problem. So I think that the, the quarterly, as Dan would say, the quarterlies are a minimum. But I think uh, I would, I always tell clients, look, if you're closing quarterly and you're not certain about something, book something as a payable. You know, if you think you owe 40,000 or 41,000, right. book 40K. Or if you think your inventory, you've got something that's in process, get something on the balance sheet. So at least it's a placeholder so you don't for lose it or forget about it. Quarterly is a, probably a really good idea. Monthly sometimes gets a lot, gets really a lot of work depending upon the size of the operation. Yeah, if you don't have good systems in place. If you don't have good IT that, that is very automatic in nature. Yep, that's true. Yep. Um, all right. Well, on the topic of, you know, financials, let's talk about business valuation because I kind of alluded to, you know, using a financial statement to give you a, a ballpark value of your business. So when is it time for to bring in a business valuation? Do you know? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a business valuation, as a lot of us know, it's not it's not the market value of your business. It's just a it's a number. It, it's one. It's every business is worth a different number according to the person buying them, right? So I think the importance of a business valuation is is at least a good step of getting you potentially in the ballpark of of what a business might pay. You know, I don't know what that you know what that range might be. You know, is that going to be within five percent above, five percent below, ten percent, fifteen? Who knows? But the business valuation definitely will at least get you a kind of initial step of what my what my ballpark is um, uh, of this arrangement. And you know, there's going to be a standard deviation above or below that you're probably going to fall into. 
uh, in terms of the pricing. So um, I think I think that's just a really important thing. And plus, that will give you the discipline because the, the valuation team will be asking you for a lot of types of uh, underlying records um, that are going to be important that you're going to have to start providing when, when you go through a due diligence process down the road. So um, I think that's a very important thing to engage in if, if you really are curious. And valuations, they'll change over time, right? Um, you know, based on company could have the same exact operations year over year over year. Uh, but the kind of a macro environment uh, will, will also change that that price. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Depending upon the future. Yes, to, to Dano's point, though, the underlying documents that, that the valuation people are asking for, they kind of speak and they hint into this whole discipline space. Like, do you have a roster of all your people and what their t- current training is? Do you have a roster of your top 10 or 20 customers? Do you have a roster of your best best vendors? I mean, what is your discipline? And they can tell, as we can, in a matter of minutes about whether the business is organized, well, well-disciplined or not. And I would, I would probably argue that a well-disciplined business will probably trade for more. Hence, one of the key attributes of value is discipline when you're getting ready to sell. Yeah. I like to think, you know, you can, maybe you don't need a full-blown business valuation right away, but I think having a conversation with a business valuation expert is a good idea in the early stages, you know, especially when you're you're starting to think, you know, I've had enough of Minnesota frigid weather. I think, you know, Florida sounds kind of nice. I, you know, I think I'm getting ready to retire. How much, how much is my business worth, right? And you can have some of those initial discussions with the business valuation uh, expert, and they can give you a pretty rough ballpark. Uh, I call it a business valuation light version, right, of of what your business is worth. And then, like you said, Dan, they'll also give you a list of things that hey, we got to clean some stuff up here, right? You've been buying, you know, personal vehicles, boats, and everything else, and sticking it in you know, general and administrative expense for the last 20 years, guess what? Like that doesn't work, you know, with the owners. So we have to do some due diligence projects, um, maybe some quality of earnings study. So on that topic, um, Dan, what do you, what do you know, or what would you anticipate to be some major steps in that due diligence process? So the, to me, I, I, I just think of the horror stories that I've, that I've, um, I've had to deal with when clients have sold to, to, to bigger players. And really it's all about the, the critical people that you have in place. And this is going to depend on the size of the organization and the company size. All companies are, are different. But your, your accountant, you have to keep them happy because they're going to be providing a lot of the source documentation to uh, whoever's going to be doing that, that process, the due diligence. Um, so keep them happy. I once had, a, um, I once had an accountant leave uh, right during the middle of a sale. Had about one month to go before close. She was fed up. She couldn't take it anymore. There was no retention bonus or any additional. Was she company. aware of the sale or? Oh yeah, she oh, was okay. aware. She yeah. was prepping everything, and, and uh, uh, my my opinion in that in that case, the owner should have done some more to uh, make sure that she was able to cross the finish line because um, she just got you know the, the amount of requests and she couldn't keep up and she just got fed up and she left. It can be overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. And, and then other the other people, HR. So if, if you're big enough to have a HR department, if not, that might also be the accountant. They are critical because they're going to be providing all the um, the um, the uh, the wage, salary information by positions. They might identify those uh, brothers and sisters and cousins who work for the company but really don't work for the company. Uh, so critical to keep them around and involved in the process. 
Uh, more and more, the IT is becoming way more important. There's a lot more questions now on due diligence r regarding, you know, cybersecurity and the types of software you use and, and, and your, 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 billing, your billing programs, your invoicing, those processes. So your, your IT manager, uh, if you have one, if you're fortunate enough to have one, will also have to be instrumental in this process, um, as well as the attorneys. Uh, the attorneys are always going to have an active role. But due diligence is very intrusive. Very intrusive because they're they're gonna they're more intrusive than an audit. It can, yes, it, it but, can get personal. But, yeah. Yes, yeah. it and it's very uh, laborious. Yes, yep. Because they're gonna be looking at every underlying you know major account receivable, inventory, payable, accrual record, and they're gonna be scrutinizing those. Yeah. Yeah. lunch receipts. I mean, you, you name it, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, we just did an acquisition here in the last two years where they went back thirty six months by month. And they looked at all the customer, the main customers, and they spread them out on a spreadsheet. It was 36 rows wide. And they had all the customers on there, and they were tracking all the revenue on those customers. Now, this was a buy that was particularly interested in getting an additional big footprint in that space. So they were very particularly interested in the revenue. They didn't really care much about the expense side, but, boy, they really got into the revenue. I was very surprised. And they would be asking, how come they, they, they paid you know 36000 in the month of May and nothing in August? Well, because he didn't buy anything in August, but they were really into it. Interesting. What? What's so? Maybe just give the listeners an understanding of what's the purpose of this. Why? Why go back thirty six months and you know strip down the financial statements? Well, in that case, they were trying to determine if the goodwill they were going to pay for the customer list was going to be repeatable. Now, it was a business that was a service type business that was repeatable. wasn't like just a one time sale. So they were trying to determine if the annuity was going to be intact and they had to identify the top customers so that when they took the keys over from the, from the seller, they knew that these 25 or these 50 accounts, whatever they are, we've got to make sure we go get those and we got to make sure that we maintain that revenue flow. And, and also how much of those sales are tied to the owner and the owner's relationship. You know, there's a concern there where all of a sudden the owner sells a customer who maybe was thinking of switching their business to somebody else might be a lot easier to play. So um, really figuring out, and I don't know how you, you do this, but you know, you're, you're probably your key sales managers. What's the, the relationship? What's the quality of that relationship with these customers? Well, so in the service businesses like ours in a CPA firm or a law firm or even a medical practice, those relationships need to become transferable. Hence why when you look prior to a sale from the primary owner, you have to look into it like five years in advance or back. So say today is 2024, I wanna sell my business, like maybe I wanna get out late, late, like maybe 2030. I should be identifying who my key account managers are in 2026, 27, and I should be making sure that those staff are working with the key customers and I fade away. I always kind of make the joke, you know, when, when the owner gets ready to sell, the, the customers ought to say, oh, does, does Tom really still work there? I haven't talked to him in a year. And that's by design because that means the transfer of the relationship has occurred. And that's where you get value in a service firm. The example I use on the 36 months, that was a subscription product type thing. So they were already in, but it's a very good question. How do you transfer those service relationships? And it's tricky. Yeah. So as a business owner, I mean, a good takeaway might be to start working on, and we talked a little bit about key people, right? Positioning key people and start transferring some of what you do to those people and sit in the background, right, for the next couple of years and just watch it operate. And if, you know, if it starts to operate on, an own, on its own, 
it becomes much easier to sell and transfer that business on to somebody else who's just turnkey. One of the biggest discounts on valuation, or a discount on valuation, is that the valuers would, will dis or they'll discount a business because it's too owner dependent. And that's a big deal. Because the, the owner dies, boom, yeah. the business is, uh, folds up. That's a problem. Which is why you do see a lot of people put um, retainers in place uh, for their key people, right? They don't want them to leave during this transition period because it might actually be a key fundamental role. And if, if they're not there to play, the business crumbles or stumbles or, you know. So I want to go back to Dan's comment about the stay bonus. So when you've got a controller that was fed up and that, that person left, the purpose, just for our listeners, the purpose of the stay bonus, and it's kind of obvious, is that when you have an acquisition and you announce to your key management team, you've got to try to have them do two things. One of them is to stay through closing, and the other one is that perhaps they might be able to stay on with the new owners. But the stay bonus ought to be enough so that once the deal closes, they have enough cash flow or a bonus that might carry them for 90 or six months, you know, three or six months, so that they don't have to worry about being unemployed on the day after the close. If they're going to get a six-month uh, payroll the day of closing, they know they've got six months. So they should be kind of, they should give them a little solace because a lot of times these merger things, you know, they, they consolidate finance, they consolidate marketing, HR, the, the administrative functions get kind of rolled up. Yeah, they eliminate some duplication. And then, and then if they got new owners, if the management group can negotiate with the new owners for uh, executive level positions, that will get them to stay as well. So... There's two, two things going on there prior to the, to the sale, Daniel. Yeah, and often, I mean, there is just logically a transition because that sale date occurs. There typically, uh, is, even if that person ultimately isn't going to be the organization, there's typically six to nine months to even a year of work to get that business fully integrated into whoever's buying them. So there's kind of a naturally a logical transition. Uh, also, what's interesting, too, is that, you know, it's this is a, more of an art versus a science is, who your key people are, letting them know, letting them know the importance of that, this work. They, you, you don't want it to spread like wildfire to the whole company. You don't want the whole company to know that you're selling like like months in advance or a year in advance. So that, that part's tricky because all of a sudden people, you know, due diligence process will happen. A lot more documents are requested. People are going to wonder, why, why are they asking for me for this for me now? They've never asked for this like during the middle of the year. Like what's and, going on? And yeah. some deals don't close. Because of that. Well, just because they, for whatever reason, they fall out of the, the process. You know, I mean, funny you say that, and I think the last two years I've had three clients attempt to go through the sale process and it fall apart at the last last. They just can't make it on terms. There's something's not right. I, I had a client about 15 years ago. They were all the way down the aisle. They were about to exchange the rings and say, I do. And there was one clause in the agreement, some indemnification that the owner could not tolerate. Just couldn't get and past. And they broke it off. Think of all those hundreds and hundreds of hours and all the meetings and to get that close and to call it off. That's, a, you know, you incur a lot of expense in that. Both the buyer and the seller can incur a lot of expense up to that point. And, you know, they, it, you know it's, it's almost like a wedding, right? Uh, yeah. As you get closer and closer to the I do moment, you've, you've sunk in a lot of, lot of money into this deal and it makes it harder to walk away from. So the fact that they're willing to call it quits over, 
you know, one phrase. And I would uh, refer our, our listeners back to the podcast we did on LOIs and uh, sale of business. We did that real, very early on. The LOI kind of goes into that detail about, yeah. you know, what happens if it goes away. I mean, you, sometimes you hear on the news where you, somebody will have a penalty for not closing. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, this company, they were having gone through that process once. They were all ready for the next time around two years later, and they were very happy with that sale. Yeah. There you go. Two years after the fact. Yep. So yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's well, you know, they did a lot of prep work for the first round, which exactly. And once you yeah. start that process, and you in your mind, you're you're still looking to sell. You just you continue to maintain yourself on that process. Yeah. So it makes yeah. it a lot cleaner the second time around. It does. Yeah. Well, let's pivot a little bit here, Tom. Uh, I'm going to leverage your expertise on this. There's a couple of different ways to structure a sale. There's an asset sale. There's a stock sale. You want to just do a quick, uh, you know, very quick brief on, you know, what's what and what's in favor of, you know, we're talking about ready in your business for sale. So as an owner, what should you be wanting to push for? Well, so there's a there's an asset sale whereby the, the sellers um, and the buyers agree to simply buy assets and the seller's business ceases and the buyer's business begins. It's a very clear delineation. And it's all based on the assets. And then they transfer the goodwill. They transfer the customer records. You know, the, it's all lock, stock, and barrel. But the seller has a taxable event. The buyer gets depreciation on all the assets. And the big deal on this is that the buyers don't inherit any past liability from the operations of the seller. And that's a big deal. Uh, payroll liabilities, uh, HR, uh, ghosts in the closet, um, maybe pending collection or litigation with vendors or customers. I mean, in the construction business, when you buy a construction company, what if a building falls down or what if something goes wrong? A new buyer, when they do an asset sale, would not have any of that liability. Conversely, if you do a stock sale, you inherit that liability and you get no step up for the new assets. So it's a very different tax transaction. Now, we've seen more and more stock sales in the healthcare business because the sellers have all these contracts in place with insurance companies. And the insurance companies are very hesitant to approve new providers. And so the new doctors are having a hard time getting approved by insurance carriers. They're just being really particular. So what we'll do is we'll do a stock sale whereby all the contracts in place transfer to the new buyer, but then you can do what's called a 338H tax election, which treats it as a stock sale for legality purposes, but it treats it as an asset purchase for tax. It's very, very um, interesting because Tom, it, I, I, both I, of, but it, it serves both masters. Which I is threw rare. two options and you came with a curveball and threw a hybrid option. Yes, right that's an hybrid, yeah. And I've done, I think, two of them in the last uh, six months. That's black magic. Is that, it's, that's it's what kinda, that is. It is <laughs> very particular. It's an, advanced, it's an advanced tax election. It's, uh, it's kind of complicated, but it works like a charm, especially in the healthcare space or in the place where you have customer contracts whereby you don't want to have to repaper all of them. So imagine you've got 500 customers and they've all got a contractual arrangement with the company and you don't want to go out and have to resell all 500 because you may not. So you just buy stock and they all transfer. The owner goes from the seller's business to the buyer's business. The owner sits in place. They work it. 
until they meet the new management over about a year or two, and it just transfers very seamlessly. It's it's a very good it's a very good uh, strategy for some businesses. Just had a transaction close in December, where the guy bought a business on the Friday before New Year's Eve, and he bought an asset sale because he was a high-paid executive at one of the local retailers. He bought a business. He could use the tax deduction. So we close it on that Friday, I think it was the 29th. We're gonna take a tax deduction and Shazam, he starts his business on the following Monday. So that was a really good example of a asset sale by the seller and an asset purchased by the buyer where it was tax driven. A stock sale would not have served him. And frankly, the little deals, the, the asset sale is the most common. So the difference is the APA is an asset purchase agreement, APA, as opposed to an SPA, stock purchase agreement. And they're just, the acronym is different for the lawyers. Isn't there usually a little bit of a premium increase for the asset sale because of the step of a basis? I mean. Yes, there there is usually some variance. And we went through this with the, with the client that we sold recently. We tried to um, convince them that they should do a asset sale and they, they weren't, they weren't, there was a large, large international company. They said, no, 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 we don't care. We just want to buy the stock. We want the contracts to remain in place. They weren't even interested in the, the premium up or down. And the number was big enough where nobody really cared. But yes, there's usually some variance because you get tax benefits in the asset sale or the asset buy because you get depreciation and the seller has a taxable event. So there's a tax drag on the sale. So say you sell your business for $3 million and the gains $1 million. Well, you probably owe... I don't know, two or 300 grand on that, right? As for the stock sale, it might only be 20, 20%, just the capital gain rate. So there's usually some variance on the stock to asset sale. That's a great question, Dan, because it does come up. In terms of ease of execution, a stock purchase is probably technically just easier to do in terms of the paperwork. Correct? It is a little easier, and they can try to do uh, exclusions and um, um, exclusions for liability. They try to paper around that, the lawyers do on the agreements. Um, uh, the stock sale is a little more a little more uh, tricky because you inherit liability and that gives people the willies. Yeah, yeah, you don't know what's coming down the road. You don't, yeah, you, you don't. don't know what's out there potentially. Yep, yep, I mean, so. Depending, and, that, and what happens is they end up with a good, really detailed due diligence process. They ask 10 times. Are there, is there any litigation? Is there anybody that's got a warranty issue? Is there anybody that's going to sue you in HR? You know, are all the light bills paid? All your they employees through, happy, yeah. They go through a lot of inquiry on liability because they don't want to have it. They don't want to get a bill like six months later. Oh, well, you never paid the real estate tax on the real estate. You know, what's up with that? So on an asset purchase agreement, you're probably going to have a little bit more work just in terms of uh, the assets and liabilities that are inc included or assumed and those that are excluded. You're going to have to get your pen out and, and go through each of those items on your financials and figure out who those are going to stay with the seller or they're going to go to the buyer. And, you know, to make kind of a little bit of a joke about it, but it's usually the president's office. He's got three pieces of artwork, his personal computer, and his favorite coffee cup. And he just takes those home in a box on the day of closing and he's gone. Everything else stays, you know, records, client books, lists, you know, everything else. But he's got his, you know, his head on the wall there that he... You know, I, I think that's funny. I had a client that actually had artwork on their balance sheet. Oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, after they sold, we said, well, where's this artwork? And uh, 
yeah, the, it was not in the office. Let's just say that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay, well, I think this can be impaired now. I don't, I don't believe this is an asset no longer held by the company. Or the cars. Sometimes the cars don't get transferred because, right. you know, it's sitting in the owner's driveway. Uh, burial plot was an interesting thing. I had a client oh, there had on the oh, books. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so then we got all kinds you of... You break that out of land, did, did you? <laughs> oh, it, was, it was an other investment. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Nice. All right, so if I'm going to sell my business, so let's say I'm going to get a million dollars. Uh, we both know that's, we all know that's not necessarily true, right? So Uncle Sam says, I've been taxing you all these years and I'm going to tax you one more time. So let's talk about tax implications of a business sale. What do we need to think about? What do we need to anticipate? Any thoughts? Well, I think if you, that if it's an asset purchase sale or asset sale, you typically, to the extent that the purchase price is allocated to the depreciable assets, you have ordinary income recapture on that depreciation. And that tax rate can be, well, it can be anywhere from 20 to 39%, 37%, depending upon the 37 at current rates. If it's a stock deal and it's a active investment, for example, an S corporation, you're limited to 20% federal and you get another 9.8 at Minnesota. So you're limited to 30%, but at the, but on an asset sale, there's there's potentially two or three rates that are involved. It's a little more complex on the asset sale. Stock sale typically is always a little more tax friendly because you have limited rates on the Fed. Now Minnesota has no difference. So, you know, go North Star State, it's the same rate, 9.8 all the way through at the top rate. So, but there's no distinction between capital gain versus uh, ordinary, because if you do stock sale on a on a federal, you get capital gain rates, and you also get to uh, include your basis. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, maybe Adam might also be thinking about too is that you know sometimes uh, businesses have significant deferred tax liabilities uh, because they've used bonus depreciation on all their asset purchases. So there's this just this natural liability that exists where they've right. got book basis in their fixed assets, but there's no tax basis left. Yeah. Yeah, and then the other side was, um, you know, I want to touch on a little bit is installment sales, and and that how that follows the tax side. So, Tom, do you want to maybe just touch on that a little bit? Well, the installment sale it gives you the opportunity to spread the tax out over time, but the tricky part about that is that that the installment sale is not available for the ordinary income recapture portion. So you have to make sure that the down payment that you receive on an installment sale covers the tax on the ordinary income recapture. And we went through that this year in 2022, last year, with a client whereby they negotiated whereby their down payment had to cover the equipment depreciation tax. Now they chose to do the installment sale, I think it was over 20, 10 or 20 years, 10 years I think it is. And they'll get capital gain treatment on that, on the goodwill portion, which worked like a charm because their rates are typically lesser when they're not working because they had fairly high payrolls. So installment sale is an effective strategy. The trap for a lot of taxpayers, and our listeners should just know this, is that you have to get enough down payment to cover the tax on the ordinary income. Because if you don't talk to us, you might not know that, and you might get a tax bill at the end of the year. Oh, you owe you know, $148,000. Yeah, but I only got seventy-five grand down. Well, we didn't know. You didn't call you know, we could have got ahead of this and we could have asked for 150,000 down and you'd be, you'd be golden. Yeah. Good point. Well, we're, we're almost out of time. We'll push the clock a little bit. I want to ask one more question and that's just major lessons, takeaways, and maybe one piece of good advice that you've taken from business sale transactions that you've worked on. Dan, let's start with you. 
Yeah, I think a time about earlier, it's getting that team of advisors, your your, your CPA, your attorney, uh, working with your broker, your, your banker, all that in advance. That just always helps. Um, keeping those those key employees happy and engaged in the process, knowing that they're personally going to have probably more work to do. Um, but part of the, the thing we haven't talked about yet really is also also the culture. I mean, anytime you're either selling your business or you're purchasing a business, you kind of want the culture fit to be right. Um, and the relationships and, you know, making sure that the, you know, the value proposition is, is, is all, you know, similar or fits with what kind of your culture is. Cause you know, probably if you're selling, you probably want your employees hopefully to stay with the new company. If you're buying, you're hoping that their employees stay with, with the company that, you know, the, the, the company that's buying as well. So, uh, really again, that, that cultural piece is tougher to identify. It's not, you know, it's not as much of the due diligence process, but it's just like any relationship, there has to be a, kind of that right feel there as well to, to make it make it a successful uh, transaction. And you might even extend that to the customers as well, right? That are the customers of this business, customers I want to do business with in the future as well. Exactly. So getting yeah, to know and vendors, all the way through. All, yeah, all those, yeah, you bet. Yeah. Tom? I think that uh, the most, there's two things really, is the most important part is the people. Because when you think about it, when you sell a business, if you're just selling uh, used equipment, that's not very valuable. But when you sell an enterprise, it includes the people. So you have to make sure in advance of a sale that you're training your people. That's very important. So the topic of our pod today is is getting ahead of the sale. I think training people in advance is critical. And then secondly, I think those people that you're training need to get introduced to external people. And that includes external on the sell side, customers, and external on the on the vendor side, meaning lawyers, accountants, insurance agents, uh, whoever help run the business because the new management groups got to be able to deal with both the revenue part, the customers and the operations, external people. And the only way that that happens is that the owner has to vacate some space in those relationships. They have to include them in the meetings. They have to include them in the sales call and they have to learn to transfer the relationship. It's risky for the owners because it starts to speak to their mortality. And that's really scary. Uh, we'll kind of leave it at that. You know, the owner says, gosh, I'm going to be done. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? That's conversations that's going on a lot of places all over the country. So so part of your conversation might be, what are you going to plan to do in your retirement well, years? Well, then that, to, that's to kind put of them at a little bit at ease. Empowering, right? because, yeah. you know, so that if you get you got to talk to the business owner, you have all this time available to you and this energy and this knowledge. What are you going to do? to enhance the last, let's just say, a third of your life. Yeah. How are you going to spend that time? Start, start thinking about what's it. What's your new purpose? Exactly. What's your new purpose? Yeah, I like so. it. Well, my mine is going to be really to get ahead of the due diligence stuff. And we talked a little bit about quality of earnings and what a business operates. And so for me, you know, you can take a lot of the headache and pain out of the business transaction process if you just get ahead and think about what this is going to look like from the seller's side or uh, the buyer's side, right? So you're selling your business. What does a seller really want to see? And they want to see a business that can stand on its own, that's clean. It doesn't have any personal stuff running through the business. And so, you know, spend that four or five years prior to when you're ready to sell and start getting rid of some of that, that cost that you've, especially with small personal owned businesses, you run a lot of personal stuff through there. Like pull all that stuff out, let the business operate on its own, you know, get a clear picture so that, you know, the, the potential buyers can look at your business that eliminate a lot of the stuff, the due diligence process, a lot of the headaches and pains, um, and make your transaction cleaner. So, um, well, that's about all we had time for. Um, so I guess we'll wrap this one up. I, I want to ask real quick though, and, and don't spend a lot of time on it, Dan, what's in your cup? 
water because it's really cold out. And when it's really cold out, you need to drink a lot of water to stay properly hydrated. Thank you. There's water and coffee. Tom? It's still in the morning. I'm drinking a cup of coffee. Yeah, I'm with you there. That's what my thermos is full. It is cold here in Minnesota, and uh, it's going to be cold for the next several months. So coffee, hot chocolate, whatever your hot beverage of choice is, uh, drink a lot of it, stay warm. And then uh, we'll conclude this. We'll talk to you next time. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Daniel. Check out all of our Q&A over coffee episodes on the Olson Thielen website. This is also the place you can go to be notified of any new episodes and submit your suggestions for future topics. You can also find all of our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Be sure to follow Olson Thielen on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.